let's make a start. Today, um, we're gonna, if you've got a Bible, you might want to open it to 1 Peter, somewhere near the back, um, because we're going to be continuing in a talk series entitled, When the Going Gets Tough, um, which David Miller um, kicked off last week in that letter in the Bible. 1 Peter um, was written to Christians a couple of thousand years ago um, in Asia Minor, which is like modern-day Turkey kind of area. And one commentator has summarized the basic purpose of the letter of helping believers live for God in a society that is ignorant of God. And so the whole letter seems to operate on this assumption that if, you know, when we decide or when they decided to follow Jesus, they could expect to experience hardship and opposition, not so much despite the fact that they're Christians, but in a way, because, precisely because they are Christians. Um, Don't be surprised. So, for example, he says exactly that in in chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And because of its theme, this letter has become treasured amongst the persecuted church um, around the world and through the years. Um, As we read it, in fact, today, we're aware that there are some around the world, and in fact, some in this room, um, uh, for whom, perhaps especially those who've come here from other countries, for whom the decision to follow Jesus has been a costly one. But for others of us, perhaps those of us who have enjoyed comparative religious freedom, I'd advise that we don't make the mistake um, as we look at this letter these coming weeks of thinking that it is somehow less relevant to us. Because in fact, um, the believers that it was written to at the time, they faced challenges that weren't that a million miles from the kind of challenges we face concerning similar issues. Um, When Peter wrote to them, at that point in time, they weren't being burnt at the stake or in prison. They weren't being fed to the lions. That stuff happened a little bit later on. But they were learning that walking as a Christian wasn't plain sailing. In their case, it seems that they were most likely beginning to experience stuff like you know, unfair treatment and mockery, social mockery, scorn and, and judgment. And so Peter, who heard about this, and was, he was a bit more weathered in his faith. He had been chucked in prison and had a few beatings and whatnot. He writes to them to steady the ship, saying, don't be surprised. Because when you choose to live for God, there will be opposition. As, as Dave put it last week, when you rub against the grain, that's how you get splinters. And so I think this letter really applies to us today, because in the same way, when we choose to follow Jesus, we face opposition. For a start, for a start, no, I won't make a joke about it. For a start, we face opposition from the devil. He doesn't like it. And he'll attack our mind with fear and doubt and lies and accusation, whatever spiritual tactics that he can to knock us off guard. We also face resistance like they did 2,000 years ago from the world around us because we're swimming against the tide of culture going the other way. Um, And some of us who have started to follow Jesus, you might have experienced this recently. You might have noticed that when, when you may decide to follow Jesus, your friends, your family, your partner maybe didn't didn't get it. They they saw it as a bit weird. They see you as a bit weird or even weirder than you were before (laughs) because you've got different priorities. Others of us who perhaps have been following Jesus for a little bit longer would have noticed that attitudes to Christians seem to be changing, don't they? You know, we used to be seen perhaps as good people who believe loving, perhaps if 
slightly foolish things, but increasingly we're seen as judgmental people who believe harmful things. For example, we hold this socially offensive conviction that Jesus is not a way of life, but the way, the truth, the life, and people don't like that. Our Christian values um, of seeking to be people who are quick to listen, slow to anger, resist the urge to retaliate, are increasingly at odds with a society where people, in contrast, are quick to condemn, quick to judge and cancel. Many of us, we hold as part of our faith a counter-cultural sexual ethic, seeing sex and sexuality not as a commodity to buy and sell or an identity or a right, but gifts to be expressed in accordance with God's designs and his purposes. We hold a view of the sanctity of human life that extends to the vulnerable, the frail, the unborn and the elderly, regardless of their faculties, that's increasingly out of sync with the surrounding culture. Many of us in work, we find that, you know, we work in contexts where, you know, in order to progress, it demands a willingness to waive kingdom principles, where we're expected to turn a blind eye to certain things. Or survival requires us, you know, if you want to manage that team, you're going to need to be harsh, you're going to need to be a bit more brutal. Or to hold that role, you're going to have to work, you know, you, you, know, you can forget any expectation of having a day off, a Sabbath, that's crazy talk. Some of you might work in trades, where you lose work because you won't do things like lie or charge for cash. And to cap it all off, often the strongest opposition that we face comes not from the devil or the world out there, but simply from ourselves. When we try to align our physical appetites and our sexual desires and our material aspirations with God's kingdom, with Jesus' way, the strongest pushback often comes from within, doesn't it? Peter, in fact, alludes to this, describing the desires that work within us as um, sinful desires which wage war against our soul. So basically, bottom line, newsflash, being Christian is hard work. It's a hard thing. Jesus said he'd come to give us life to the full, but also we're not to be surprised that the minute we step out those doors, and we'll do it in a moment, there was a strong culture pulling in the opposite direction. It's a bit, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever had this, but that experience of when you're playing at the beach and you're in the sea, you know, with the beach ball or whatever, and after a few minutes you look up and you see how far you've drifted along the beach because of the current. Have you ever experienced that? And to resist it, you can't, you know, it requires more than just taking a few steps back to where you were. You have to almost like keep on stepping all the time. In the same way, I believe that for us to persevere, it requires more than just coming here for a couple of hours on a Sunday and stepping towards Jesus and then going with the flow Monday to Saturday. If we do it like that, we'll just drift out of sight. And I believe that this letter shows us this situation is not new. It's been like it for years. And so Peter, in it, he encourages them, but he encourages us. He spends little time dwelling on questions like, why is this happening to us? Spends little time giving advice about how to avoid it. But it's packed with advice about why we should persevere. And so um, last week, we kicked off with some of that. Um, remember Dave talked about how one way that we can persevere is through embracing a perspective of Hope, seeing the hardships and trials that we might face right now in light of an eternal timeline, recognizing that these things are temporary and they come before an eternity of peace with Jesus. 
Another perspective that this letter presents is that of identity, um, the encouragement to see and embrace an identity that's not ultimately defined by ourselves or stemming from one's culture or upbringing or class, but the identity that God gives us and allowing who we are, therefore, to drive how we are. And we'll be looking at that in a couple of, week, couple of weeks' time. A little bit of a sneak preview there. But another perspective that this letter encourages us to adopt, and the one that we're going to be focusing on today, is that of purpose. When the going gets tough, it's an actually an opportunity to seek purpose in the midst of that. And the idea is that, you know, when we're facing opposition, um, you know, we're not to be, we're encouraged not to be outraged, not to demand an explanation for why it's happening, but to seek purpose in the midst of it. And Peter sort of gets into this in the first chapter, first few verses. Um, this is um, chapter one, verse three. He says, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but he continues a little bit further down. These have come so that the genuine provenness, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That opposition, in other words, is an opportunity. There is purpose in it to persevere and ultimately glorify God as you do so. And I realize this is a kind of a counterintuitive notion. Um, it might even sound like just stubbornly optimistic wordplay, but I believe it's true. Now, just to be clear, um, what I am not arguing for here and what I don't think Peter is arguing for is the idea that every problem we therefore face is, you know, has been sent to us by God to teach us a particular lesson. So what I'm not saying is, you know, tomorrow morning when you come downstairs in the morning and you step barefoot on a bit of Lego, that's not an invitation to go, oh, what lesson has God put this Lego brick here to teach me? I don't think we find an argument in 1 Peter that encourages to reduce it down to a simplistic formula like that. Nor does I think he start encouraging us to start calling bad things good. You know, to, like, for example, oh, this illness that I've got is a good thing because God's given it me to teach me a lesson. No. But there does seem to be a clear message that bad things can present good opportunities. It presents, it presents a purpose. An example of this, um, Abby and I, um, just the other week, we spent some time praying with a lady who's part of this church um, who has been almost entirely housebound with poor health for well over two, mo two months, and it's been horrible for her. But as she shared, she, she's persevered in the midst of it, and she has a hope and a confidence that the other side of this, she will be able to pray and support others experiencing the same condition. Now, does that mean that her realness is a good thing? No, of course it doesn't. But it doesn't mean that she can't seek a godly purpose in the midst of it. So what are the purposes of persevering against opposition that we find in this letter? First one is that it is an opportunity to mature in our faith. Mature in our faith. The Christian journey is a lifelong journey of maturing. Um, and, and, and it involves every area of our lives. It's about maturing mentally in the ways that we think and the stuff that we understand and know, particularly about God and his word. It's a journey of maturing spiritually, allowing the Holy Spirit to shape us and form us through spiritual disciplines, spend time with him, maturing socially in the way that we do relationships and maturing emotionally in the way that we understand and take responsibility for and express our feelings. And of course, 
this is a big endeavor. I don't think there is a single person in this church or in this room who would claim to be fully mature in all of these areas, except my wife, Abby. It's a, life, it's a lifelong process of learning and growing. And of course, there are some aspects of maturing that cannot be learned in a book. They have to be lived. And I think Peter, he knew this because his life was a case study in this. Um, Dave pointed out last week that most of the scholars um, over the years believe that the Peter who wrote this letter is the same Peter as the one in the gospel stories, the disciple of Jesus. And the thing that separates the two is about 30 years of him following Jesus. And boy, can you tell the difference? In the gospels, he is, you know, a character. He is Peter the petulant. Peter, the reckless, the impatient, he's flawed and self-absorbed. He's the one who, you know, made bold promises to stand by Jesus, whatever. But when push came to shove, he faltered and he failed and he denied Jesus. Yet in the midst of that story, we read in in the Gospels that, that Jesus came into Peter's life and he revealed that he had a different plan for him that was bigger and better and greater. And he said, he said to Peter, you will become my rock. There will come a day when the church begins and it will need you to be steadfast. And in the aftermath, even of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus came to him and he reinstated him and he forgave him. And he prophesied in that moment that one day Peter would face persecution and choose to walk to his own death for the sake of his faith. Jesus predicted that. And at the time, it seemed implausible because Peter was all over the place. He was a mess. But as we read 1 Peter 30 years on, you can see that Peter the petulant has become Peter the patient, Peter the faithful and wise. As he encourages the church to hold firm, it's clear that he has become unshakable. He's become solid. It's it's like he's become like, um, like a rock. It's funny that, isn't it? Because by this point, he'd had all of his sharp edges rounded off. He'd been chastened by failures. He'd been trained through the opposition that he'd faced from the Pharisees and the religious authorities. He'd been chucked in prison by Herod. And so with all of this hard-earned life experience, he writes to these young Christians who are experiencing their first bit of turbulence. And with a mature affection, he explains how persevering through adversity It's part of maturing. It's part of the maturing process. So, for example, in chapter 4, he explains, Therefore, um, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because, listen to this, this is what happens as a result of it, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, and as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human evil desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. So you see, it's sort of, as you persevere through it, you, you, you mature. And in fact, in chapter two, he says something a bit similar. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up, grow up in your salvation. So as we persevere in our faith, as we day in, day out, choose hard decisions, choose integrity over compromise and love over selfishness. What happens is we grow up, we mature. And so I believe that 2,000 years on, this letter speaks to us. 
when we face a bit of hardship for the sake of our faith. So for example, when a friend goes cold towards you because you, know, because you and your new weird beliefs or when you share something faith-based, an opinion, and you get you know, unfollowed or unfriended or criticized for what, what you said, when your beliefs or convictions rule you out of favor for a particular position, I believe perhaps rather than see it as a cue to declare with outrage, persecution, to point the finger, perhaps it's an opportunity to see those kind of things as the sandpaper that rounds off the edges, an opportunity to grow in grace and mature, to be strengthened in humility. Because I suspect the reality is that the types of hardships that we are experiencing right now in the UK, they're not pleasant, but they don't amount, I think, to the definition of persecution that others have and are enduring in other places in the world. Now, there may come a time where we do experience some of those things here. But if that's the case, I suspect a good way to prepare for it is to see the knocks that we have to take now as a bit like, you know, when you you get a new cricket bat and you, you knock it in for a few hours with a mallet, tap, 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 to harden it, to prepare it for the real deliveries that are yet to come in the future. They're an opportunity to mature. Okay, second point. How can we find purpose in adversity? If you like the first point, you're going to love this second one. It's great. Suffer like Jesus. Okay, yay. You know, in church, we so often we talk about being like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did, don't we? And we love that stuff. You know, like when we say, let's preach the gospel like Jesus. Everyone's like, yes. Let's be generous like Jesus. Yes, amen. Let's do miracles like Jesus. Let's go. Suffer like Jesus. Yes. Sorry, what? Surely not. But actually, yeah, this crops up a number of times as an explicit instruction in this letter. Here's a few examples. Chapter four, and we saw this one. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, skipping back to chapter two, it says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. And again, in chapter four, if you suffer as a Christian, Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. It's kind of strange. Like, how can this be a good thing? Well, I think an important um, distinction to make here is that this is not an aspiration to suffer, like we're not masochists, but it's an aspiration that relates to the way that we suffer, which we inevitably will to suffer as Jesus did, the way he did. So, for example, in chapter 3, verse 9. Peter explains, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On contrary, repay evil with blessing because of this, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And, you know, here he's simply, can you see what he's doing? He's simply reminding them of what Jesus preached. Remember Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And of course, he's reminding them of what Jesus practiced. Jesus practiced this all the way to Calvary, all the way to the cross, from where he, he prayed for his persecutors, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus taught and he modelled in his life a way of responding to unjust treatment through nonviolent resistance, through forgoing revenge, and instead choosing to seek kindness and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And the claim that Peter makes in this letter and that other New Testament writers make is that when we choose, when we make a decision 
to respond to unfair oppression, especially when it comes towards us as a consequence of our loyalty to Jesus. When we respond to it like Jesus, we somehow participate in his sufferings. Uh, Elsewhere, it says we share in his sufferings. And it's kind of a hard concept to explain, but I'll have a go. Just as Jesus suffered for the purposes of God's kingdom, he went down into the grave and then onto the resurrection. Our experience in some way mirrors that journey, embodies that story. We don't face the burden that he faced. Of course we don't. But we are able to follow his trajectory. When we enter down into suffering, down into the darkness, we are reminded there that Jesus' story did not end in the grave. We're reminded there that he rose, that he returned to heaven, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, reminded of his promise that one day he will come again and return to make all things new. And through sharing in this journey, we experience a proximity to him. We're reminded that if he is big enough to have done that, then he is big enough to bring us through this. And we are granted the strength through it to suffer in the way that he did even extending grace and forgiveness to our persecutors. A beautiful example of this is the testimony of a a lady called Maria W. Stewart. Um, She was a trailblazing African-American woman who became a Christian um, around about 1830, apparently, and she lectured publicly, arguing for the abolition of slavery and for women's rights at a time um, and in a place where Women didn't do that, let alone black women. And of course, she faced enormous opposition as she did it. But um, towards the end, in her farewell address, she spoke these words. She said, I believe that a rich reward awaits me, if not in this world, then in the world to come. You see, she's engaging with that trajectory of hope. Oh, blessed reflection, the bitterness of my soul has departed from from those who endeavoured to discourage and hinder me in my Christian progress, and I can now forgive my enemies. Bless those who've hated me and cheerfully pray for those who have despitefully used and persecuted me. What a testimony to share. I think she's evidence to the fact that when we choose to suffer like Jesus, we find that we are able to suffer with him. And we are spurred towards the hope beyond and empowered to extend grace in the present. Such that, ultimately, we tap into another purpose that we find in this letter, a purpose that we can find in perseverance, that of glorifying God so that he and others can see. And that's my final point today. Remember back in chapter one, we looked at um, verses one, three to seven, Peter spoke about the trials and he said, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. An example of this um, is a a story from centuries ago. Many many believe to be the earliest writing of any Christian woman um, is the personal account of a lady called Perpetua who together with another woman, Felicitas, they were both young mothers and they were executed in a Roman arena for refusing to renounce their Christian faith. And their story was famous at the time and through the centuries, not just for the suffering that they endured, but particularly the way that they did it. Apparently, as the gladiators moved towards them with their swords, 
They embraced and supported one another. And apparently when spectators saw their courage and their love for one another, people became Christians in the arena just from watching what they did. The trial that had been intended to showcase the strength and the power of the Roman Empire simply served to demonstrate the strength and power of their faith and God's love. And this is a pattern that we've seen through the centuries. Whenever and wherever Christians have been pushed against the wall, there is something about the way that they have responded that has drawn people in, that has begged questions about their faith. You know, an example of that, last week, um, Dave talked a little bit about the extremely difficult time that he and his wife Lizzie endured when their daughter was born um, 26 weeks, I think it was, extremely prematurely. And one thing that I recall about that time, as we talked and prayed together, was that there were numerous occasions where their faith bolstered mine. When I looked at them and thought, if God is big enough to be real for them in that, then surely he is big enough to be real for me in whatever I'm facing. And you might have experienced that with similar situations when when a Christian friend has faced unfair treatment and they have come through it clinging to Jesus, finding supernatural grace and extending radical forgiveness. When you see that, it bolsters your faith, doesn't it? I mentioned earlier about brothers and sisters who are part of this church family who have come from other countries. I think particularly our brothers and sisters from Iran. Many of us, we have heard your stories, the sacrifices that you've made for your faith, having to leave your homes and your professions and even your families behind. Peter says in this letter that the faith that you have shown and are showing in those trials is of greater worth than gold. And it will result in praise when Jesus returns. And I believe that even in now, in the meantime, your faith is God's gift to us as a family because we get to look at you and say, if God is big enough and real enough for you to face that, then surely he is big enough and real enough for us to face whatever we do. Peter says, in fact, in chapter three, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Because of course, yes, Christian, being a Christian is hard. The moment we step out those doors, we face a current that streams the opposite way. But if we do not fear, if we remain not frightened, if we persevere, then we give the world a chance of catching a glimmer of hope in our hearts as they stream the other way that is of greater worth than gold. And Peter says, as you do that, don't, you know, don't falter, don't fear, but do be ready to explain why. Because when people see that faith in you, when they see you responding to challenge with hope, when they see you respond to unfair treatment with grace and seek forgiveness, they'll want to know, like, Why? What's the deal with you? Be ready to explain a reason for the hope that you have. Be ready to explain the trajectory of hope that you believe you're on. Be ready to talk about the Jesus in whom you trust. To persevere, we must keep stepping, but keep stepping, we must, because our perseverance has a purpose. 
It matures us in our faith. Remember that first point. It unites us with Jesus as we share and participate in his suffering. And it glorifies God ultimately so that he and the world can see. Shall we stand together?